Well, this morning we are back in Romans, and we will be concluding chapter number three. Uh, over the past several weeks, we have seen how Paul has clearly and thoroughly articulated that every person, regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of their religious background, every person is in need of a Savior. And this universal need that we see in chapters 1, 2, and 3 have demonstrated the reality that no one can attain the righteousness of God on their own. And as Paul concludes chapter 3, he will also demonstrate, albeit in somewhat of a nutshell, that faith in Jesus is the only way to receive the righteousness of God. Faith in Jesus is the only way a person can be saved. It's the only way they can be made righteous and experience the righteousness of God. So let's read all of chapter number three this morning, and then we will jump into uh, the final message in Romans chapter number three. The Bible says in Romans three, beginning in verse one, so what advantage does the Jew have? Or what benefit of circumcision? Paul says, considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then, if some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, Paul says, though everyone is a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Verse 6 says, absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation, Paul says, is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood, 
through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. And as we conclude looking at the universal need for a Savior, and as we see, as Paul says, that we conclude that we will experience your righteousness through faith in Jesus, I pray that that reality, that conclusion Paul makes, would be a proclamation of good news, healing, and liberty. Father, I pray that you would open our minds to understand and contemplate these things from your word. I pray that your word would give us life and strength this morning. And I pray that your church would be in your instruction and that your word would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we could be like righteous trees planted by flowing streams, bearing fruit to your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, as we jump into our text this morning, uh, the first thing that we notice is Paul sums up everything that he has been unpacking over the last few chapters, and this shows us our first thought this morning, and that is, very simply, as we have seen, all are under sin. All are under sin. Now, Paul is doing more than just summing up his thoughts here. He's doing more than just uh, putting a nice conclusion on everything that he's been unpacking. As he concludes that all are under sin, he actually quotes several Old Testament passages, uh, mainly from Psalms and Isaiah, to make one last emphasizing point of the reality that all are indeed under sin. It's like the explanation point at the end of everything that he's been unpacking over the last few chapters. Now, if you remember, anytime you see the phrase, as it is written in the New Testament, that tells you that the writer is about to quote the Old Testament. And we see Paul doing that beginning in verses 10 through verse 18. Let's read it again. He says in verse 10, as it is written. So that's our clue. Paul's about to unpack some Old Testament for us. There is, Paul's about to unpack some. There's none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. Not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, as we read Paul quoting these Old Testament passages, it's important to know and remember that what Paul is quoting here is to some degree uh, what I'll call prophetic hyperbole. Uh, we know that they aren't literal in the strictest sense because no one's throat is literally an open grave, right? Uh, no one has literal viper's venom under their lips. 
the writers of the prophets and the writers of Psalm are often dramatic to prove a point. And Paul is quoting several passages where the writers were being dramatic to get a point across. And the point that Paul is making by quoting these verses together is that no person can experience or gain the righteousness of God on their own. He's using this prophetic and dramatic language to emphasize and to prove to his fellow Israelites, none of us are good enough on our own. None of us can be saved on our own. Unless God draws a person to Christ, they cannot save themselves. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise him up on the last day. Experiencing the righteousness of God is a supernatural act. It's a miracle that God does. We don't save ourselves. And Paul is quoting passages of Scripture that his fellow Israelites would have known and would have loved to dramatically emphasize this point. He's telling his fellow Israelites, look, you can't save yourself. You don't have the righteousness of God on your own. You don't save yourself. Another person didn't save you. If you were saved, if you are in Christ, that was a miracle of God. It was an act of amazing grace that he revealed to you your need to be saved. And an act of love, if you're in Christ, God awakened you at some point to your lostness and the just punishment that you were facing, and then he brought you to the person of Jesus. Sometimes, for many, it's the miracle of a moment. For others, it's more of a longer miracle <laughs> over the process of time as you learn who Jesus was and as God slowly drew you to the person of Jesus. But make no mistake, it was God that drew you to Jesus. It wasn't you who saved you because you were good enough. It was God that saved you. And it is God that will keep you until you leave this earth and enter into his presence. And it will be God that you will enjoy forever and worship for all of eternity. No one can save themselves. No one can be saved on their own. Paul quotes these Old Testament passages to further demonstrate and emphasize to his fellow Israelites, look, this has been told from the beginning. We can't save ourselves. We don't have the righteousness of God on our own. No one can be saved on their own. And to conclude this point, he says in verse 19 and 20 that the point of the law is not so that you can be saved on your own, but it is in fact to reveal that you are under sin, which explains why the entire world, not just the Gentiles, are subject to God's judgment. Look at verses uh, 19 and 20 again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be subject to God's judgment for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Paul is putting that explanation point at the end of this whole argument towards his fellow Jews to understand, hey, look, the law says that even you as Jews stand in judgment. Even you who had the law are still under judgment. The point of the law is to reveal that the whole world is subject to God's judgment. Paul tells his fellow Israelites that the law will not save them. The law will not bring you the righteousness of God. It reveals our need for the righteousness of God. And then as he moves into verse 21, Paul demonstrates how 
not only the moral law of God, but the law and the prophets demonstrate his main point in the book, that the righteousness of God comes through faith. So we see that we are all under sin, but we also see that all can be saved. Look at verses 21 through 26. Paul says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That may seem confusing, but we'll explain that here in a minute. He says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there is no distinction, God doesn't say Jews get saved one way and Gentiles get saved another way. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him, who? Jesus, as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I want to draw your attention to the two ways the word the law, the two ways the word law gets used in verse 21. Uh, At the beginning of the verse, Paul says, apart from the law. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Uh, The word law there is in the lower case, and it refers to the moral law of God. At the end of the verse, he says that this has been attested by the law and the prophets. Uh, The law there at the end of the verse is capitalized. And whenever you see the word the law used in conjunction with the prophets, uh, that's telling us that that's referring to the entire Old Testament. The law and the prophets was shorthand for what we now know as the Old Testament. Uh, but the ancient Jewish people, they didn't organize or categorize the Old Testament the way they did. And so for shorthand, they would often say, it's what the law and the prophets says. That was their way of saying this is the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament reveals that the righteousness of God comes by faith. So Paul isn't speaking out of two sides of his mouth here, saying, apart from the law, we see that righteousness is revealed by faith from God, is what the law says. He's actually using that word in two different ways. He's telling us that the entire Old Testament reveals that the righteousness of God comes by faith. In fact, chapter 4 is really one just big sermon illustration to illuminate this reality. Paul uses in chapter 4 the patriarch of the Jewish faith, Abraham, to help illustrate to his fellow Jews this point that the righteousness of God comes through faith. If you look at chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, we see this in a nutshell. He says in verse 3 of chapter 4, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. Throughout the New Testament, Paul tells us that the gospel is God's free gift that he gives us. He says that in chapter 3, that it is freely given. And so in chapter 4, he's saying if you earned it, it wouldn't be a gift. It would be something that you earned. It wouldn't be, now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, and as he has clearly demonstrated, none of us can work enough to earn this because we're all under sin, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. 
Paul uses throughout chapter 4 Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish faith, the guy who quote-unquote started it all, they would have believed. He uses Abraham's life as a demonstration to prove that the entire Old Testament has revealed that the righteousness of God comes through faith and that they're looking at the law the wrong way. It is faith that saves a person, not their good works. And in chapter 3, Paul says it's faith in Jesus that saves us now. This salvation, he says, is available to all who believes. The righteousness of God is available to anyone who believes. There's no distinction. In the last several weeks, we have seen that all stand guilty. Paul says that again in verse 6. We have seen that all stand guilty. 23 of chapter 3. Romans 3.23, we're all very familiar with this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We quote that verse on its own regularly, but I'm so glad that verse is not a complete sentence. (laughs) Fall short of the glory of God. Semicolon, not period. He goes on to say in verse number 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by Jesus. Just like there's no distinction in judgment, all are under sin. All are guilty, regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of your religious background, regardless of whether a person was circumcised or not. We looked at that a few weeks ago, why that was such a big deal. Regardless of any of that, all are guilty. There's no distinction in judgment. And the good news is there's no distinction either in salvation. Those who place their faith and trust in Jesus are justified freely. Justified means that as Christians, those that have placed their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, they are declared righteous. God looks at you through the lens of Jesus Christ, and he sees the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect life that Jesus lived. Sinners, we have seen, stand condemned in God's court, and yet he declares believers, those that have placed their faith in Jesus, he declares believers not guilty because of Jesus' work on the cross. That's what it means to be justified. Justified freely. Freely means that God grants justification not due to any merit in the Christian, but solely by his grace, the undeserved love and mercy of God. As we saw in chapter 4, we don't earn this. Abraham didn't earn the righteousness of God. It was given to him by faith. And we as believers, we don't earn the righteousness of God. It's given to us freely as a gift that we can never earn. Justified freely. He goes on to say, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is a commercial term that at this time would have referred to purchasing freedom for slaves. Paul uses this word intentionally to reveal that all people are slaves to sin by their fallen nature. Before a person believes in Jesus, they're enslaved to sin. And the purchase price for our freedom from sin was the blood of Jesus. When a person places their faith in Christ, they are redeemed. God purchased them out of slavery to sin. God purchased you out of that. In Paul's day, a a person could purchase their freedom. If they were an indentured servant and they were uh, in bad circumstances, there was no such thing as bankruptcy in the ancient times. So oftentimes a person would sell themselves to somebody so they could work off their debt. But a person, if they saved enough money, they could purchase themselves out of that. And so Paul uses this to help us realize that what Jesus did, Jesus did what we can never do. He purchased us out of slavery from sin. 
And so when we place our faith in Jesus, we are redeemed. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we have been set free from sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, 35, and 36, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever. It's foreshadowing the judgment that would be to come. But he says, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. You can remain in the household of God forever. To be free from sin means that you are no longer bound by it. You no longer have to fear being cast out of the household of God. You're in it forever. You've been given the power to say no to sin when temptation rears its ugly head and the freedom from the eternal consequences of it. We've seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3 the wrath of God. We've seen the impending judgment that God is going to pour out on sin, and we've seen how that's righteous. We've seen how as sinners we have deserved that. But God says when you are redeemed through Jesus, you are set free from that. A person can be set free from all the sin all the self-righteous reliance, all the wrath, all the eternal judgment that has been revealed in chapters 1, 2, and 3. You can be free from it. Those who believe in Christ are free. And so we gather as a church family to remind ourselves that we are free. We recite that creed every week to remind ourselves that we are free. Those who believe in Christ are free. But then as Paul continues in verse 25, he he, he unpacks more awesome truth. Verse 25 says, God presented him, Jesus, as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Now, if you're familiar with this verse in a different translation, it's probably been bothering you that I've been saying mercy seat every time instead of propitiation. So let's unpack uh, what this means a little bit. This verse tells us that God presented Jesus as the atoning sacrifice. When Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, he atoned for our sins. That means he faced the penalty our sins deserved. He presented himself as a sacrifice to pay for what we did. That's what it means to be an atoning sacrifices. Many Bible translations, and in fact, I, I think most, uh, would translate this word in the Greek as propitiation. Propitiation means atoning sacrifice. The Greek word that's used here is a term that's borrowed from the Old Testament sacrificial system and temple. Remember, Paul's still trying to unpack this for his fellow Israelites, and so he's again using an Old Testament example and metaphor that they would have understood and believed. It was used, uh, this word was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. The top of the Ark of the Covenant is where the cherubim sat in the Old Testament. That was called literally the mercy seat. That's why the Christian Standard Translation, the one I preach from, translates this word as mercy seat, because that's the word that was used in the Septuagint in the Greek Old Testament. And what would happen on that mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant is once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holy Place, and he would sprinkle blood over the Ark to atone for the nation of Israel for their sins. By this rite, the sins were deemed wiped away. Moreover, God's wrath was averted or propitiated. Now we see in verse 25 that God in his restraint passed over the sins previously committed. And as we see, human sins could not literally be atoned for by the death of animals. And so this was a picture that we saw throughout the Old Testament that foreshadowed the sacrifice of Jesus. 
Uh, Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls or goats to take away sin. And so in the Old Testament, they would go through this ritual, they would go through this rite. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice on the mercy seat, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant to atone for his sin. And then God, in his restraint, would pass over those sins previously committed. But Jesus came to accomplish what no priest slaying an animal could ever hope to accomplish. Full satisfaction of God's requirement for atonement. God presented his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice, as the mercy seat. By means of Jesus' blood, his his sacrificial death, God's holy wrath against sin was appeased, it was atoned for, and the sins of all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are taken away. So the cross is the forever, the sacrifice of Jesus is the forever and eternal mercy seat of God. Paul intentionally uses this word so his fellow Jews would understand that the Old Testament and sacrifices and systems were just the shadow and Jesus is the substance. And so there's a lot of ways we could translate this word because it's such a rich word, mercy seat, atoning sacrifice, propitiation, but it's such a rich word because it shows us what Jesus was accomplishing for us on the cross. He was the atoning sacrifice. If you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews 10. The writer of Hebrews demonstrates this greatly. Uh, I believe these verses will be up on the screen, but I want to read Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 18, because the writer of Hebrews unpacks this for us in a great way. In Hebrews 10, he says, Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time. So the Day of Atonement, that was a -a once-a-year sacrifice, but there was tons of other sacrifices that they would do every day. He says, offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice, talking about Jesus, but this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Sitting down at the right hand of God signifies that the sacrificial work of the cross was done. It was complete. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are sanctified, were justified, eternally secure. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days. The Lord says, again, he's quoting the Old Testament. That's why he says, for after he says, quoting the Old Testament, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days. The Lord says, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds and I will never again remember their sins. What a beautiful reality. I will never again remember their sins. He goes on, and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. The point is the sacrifice of Jesus put an end to the Old Testament sacrificial system. We don't need to keep making sacrifices for sin. Jesus was the once and forever sacrifice. Back in Romans, Paul says, at the, in verse 26, he says, uh, the present time that he refers to at the end of verse 26 is the time of the cross. It's the time of preaching the good news, showing that God is righteous, and he declares righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So when Jesus took the, the, penal, the penalty for our sin, when God poured out his wrath on him, and he said that 
sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus is atoning. It appeases the wrath of God. God demonstrated his righteousness. God demonstrated his justness by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus. And now he declares righteous, the one who has faith in him. In Jesus Christ, his son, God has graciously satisfied his own holy demands and directed against himself his own righteous wrath that the sinners deserve. By Christ's sacrifice, God has satisfied or propitiated his own wrath. As a result, God is both just and because he is just, he can declare those who have faith in Jesus justified. Therefore, Jew and Gentile alike stand justified, can stand justified, not by their works, but by their faith in the finished work of Christ. And Paul says in verse 27, where then is boasting? Paul tells his fellow Israelites, look, this leaves us no room for boasting because you can't save yourself. <laughs> You're not any better. You don't have access to the righteousness of God based on your circumcision or your law keeping or your ethnicity. There's no more room for comparison. There's no more room for pride. The cross has excluded pride. It's removed it. It's taken the reason forward away. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer. I don't know if that's a word, but C.S. Lewis said it, so I'm going to count it. Um, <laughs> they are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is, in, it is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And so what Paul is helping his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites understand is, look, the ground is level at the cross. You're not better than the Gentiles. You had an advantage, yes, but you're not better off than the Gentiles. All of us are equally guilty, and all of us receive the righteousness of God the same way. In verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. What Paul is doing is he pulls the wheat, the wheat of pride that's fueled by comparison right up by its roots. He says, nope, the gospel just removes that. All can be saved and are saved the same way. There's no more room or reason for arrogance. God is the God of everyone. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for discrimination. It's excluded. Paul's explaining how the gospel eliminated any sense of superiority his fellow Israelites had based on their ethnicity and law-keeping. And so as he's helping this church mix with Jewish people and Gentile people, learn how to experience and walk in the righteousness of God together, he pulls out that weed of pride. You're not any better. We can't compare ourselves anymore because we're all the same way. This is why it says in verses 27 through 30, where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No. If it was a law of works, there'd be room for pride because some of us will be better than others. But Paul says uh, the, that the law of works did not exclude pride. On the contrary, it was a law of faith. For we conclude, Paul's like, this is the point. This is the conclusion of the matter. This is, this is it right here. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Then he asks a rhetorical question, or is God the God of Jews only? 
Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Christ's sacrifice on the cross for all who will believe is how God demonstrated his righteousness. And the conclusion of the whole matter, Paul says, is that we are justified by faith. And as Paul concludes chapter 3, he senses it seems like one more objection that's coming up. One more, yeah, yeah, but from his fellow Jews. As Paul concludes chapter 3, he makes it clear that this does not nullify the law. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not, Paul says. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Because the law, following the law, the works of the law, does not give us the righteousness of God. It's through faith. He says that doesn't mean the law is useless. That doesn't nullify it. We don't throw it out. Paul says we're actually upholding the law because we're keeping it in its rightful place. So yes, all are under sin, but all can be saved. The good news of Jesus is both exclusive and inclusive. On the one hand, it's incredibly exclusive, right? The only way to experience the righteousness of God is to be, get, the only way to be forgiven and saved from sin, the only way to be redeemed is by believing in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why Paul said, if you back up to verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't say it's through faith in Jesus Christ and crossing all your T's and dotting all your I's and making sure that you, you know, did X, Y, Z. No, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus. There is no other way to God. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I know it's politically correct, but this idea that there's all these different roads that can lead to heaven and there's all these different ways you can experience God, it's just not consistent with Scripture. Jesus himself said, the only way you get to God, the only way you experience freedom from sin, the only way you experience the truth and the life is through me. You can't believe in Jesus and also trust in yourself. You can't believe in Jesus and also trust in your good works or your intellect or any other religion. You can't just stick Jesus on the same shelf as all these other gods and think, well, I got Jesus and I also got these other guys, so I'm okay. No, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus only Jesus. So on the one hand, it's incredibly exclusive because it says there's only one way. But on the other hand, it's more inclusive than any other religion or belief in the world. Look at verse 22. This shows us the exclusivity and the inclusivity. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. To who? To all who believe, since there is no distinction. According to the Talmud, which was a collection of Jewish uh, traditions, each, each morning a Jewish man would get up and pray, thank God I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. I find that ironic since they were under Roman occupation, but that's another story. But what Paul's helping them understand is, look, guys, there is no more distinction. Throughout the New Testament, we see over and over and over that becoming a follower of Jesus Christ doesn't matter what side of the tracks you come from, what you look like, whether you're rich or poor, whether you've kept your nose clean or you've made a royal mess of your life, you can be saved. 
you can come to Jesus. If you remember back when we walked through the book of Philippians, we saw that the church of Philippi, this is ironic, was started by Paul, who was a Jewish rabbi, and the first three converts were who? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. (laughs) Over and over throughout the New Testament, we see what Paul says in such a brief but amazing statement. It's to all who believe. You can come to Jesus. The gospel is inclusive. It's inclusive with the bad news. (laughs) We're all guilty. It includes all of us in the guilt. It includes all of us in the deserved judgment. But in a much better and more wonderful sense, anyone can come to faith in Christ. And as we've seen, this leaves no room for pride, right? But what it does do is it fills our hearts with gratitude. It fills our hearts with praise. We saw what we were apart from Christ. Idolaters deserving judgment. But because of the mercy of Jesus, those of us who are in Christ have been saved. Jesus became our atoning sacrifice, our mercy seat, and all of our sins are forgiven. We have been given the righteousness of God. And so, yes, there's no room for pride, and that might be convicting, but it should fill our heart with gratitude and thanksgiving that we who deserve nothing have been given everything. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, let me encourage you to consider Jesus today. Unpacking this is more of a celebration for us as a church and helping us understand what our salvation means. That's my goal. I'm, I'm preaching to the church. The church is saved believers who have placed their faith in Jesus, but if you're listening to this and you're here, but you're not a part of the church, but you're here and you're watching and you're listening or you're watching online, thanks for being here. Let me encourage you. Consider Jesus. Consider placing your faith and trust in him. We'd love to put some resources in your hand and give you a Bible so you can answer the question, who is Jesus, and consider him for yourself. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner being through your spirit. I pray that you would dwell in our hearts and that you would establish us in your love so that we could comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of your love. Help us to know your love that surpasses knowledge. Lord, I love that phrase. The prayer is help us know the unknowable. (laughs) Help us know your love which surpasses knowledge so that we can be filled with your fullness. Holy Spirit, awaken our hearts to your love. I pray that if there's an unbeliever who's listening to this, whether in the room or online, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would awaken their heart to their lost state, to the righteous wrath to the eternal judgment, but then awaken their heart to the reality of your love, that Jesus paid the price for sin and they can be made righteous in you. We ask you this because you're able to do above and beyond all that we could ask or think according to the power that works in us, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we pray this, and we pray this so that you could receive glory in this church and in your church all around the world. 
in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.